Welcome to the Flamin Connect podcast, a podcast focused on the individual pieces that make up the larger community of people together doing what's right and making a difference. Today's hosts, we have myself, Trevor Grindy, Regan Kuntz, and Mitch Flamin. Did you know that agriculture supplied 1.053 trillion to the U.S. gross domestic product in 2017, which makes it the 16th largest economy in the world if treated as its as its own mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. Can you say that again, please? 1.05 trillion. Yeah. Read read the whole thing again, please. Okay, agriculture supplied 1.053 trillion to the U.S. gross domestic product in 2017, which would make it the 16th largest economy in the world if treated as its own country. <laughs> <laughs> that's that crazy in, that's incredible pop quiz how many tomatoes or tomatoes are in a 32 ounce bottle of ketchup 32 ounces of no just kidding i don't know it's like how many how much butter is in a pound of butter <laughs> a pound of it <laughs> um Oh, ask that again. Yeah. How many tomatoes are in a 32 ounce bottle of ketchup? A dozen. I'm going to go more, way more, like 30. Okay, so I'm going to give you the multiple choice now. It's one, four, (laughs) eight, or 11. (laughs) 11. (laughs) (laughs) 11. One. You got, do you have, one. No, I'm, I'm one? in the other, other way. Stretch the hell out of that yeah. tomato. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really big tomato. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you have it? Yeah. You're one. going with one. My okay. So one. if so, the, according to the question, assuming that a tomato is eight ounces or six, sorry, six ounces, there are about eight tomatoes in a 32 ounce bottle really? of ketchup. There you go. About eight. That's where my original train of thought was. So how how, much, how 32 ounces? Well, there's 32 ounces of tomatoes in there then. But you're right. There is. Yeah. But how many tomatoes? Wow. Well, what are you, you know, dividing by? Uh, no, and then after I was like, no, <laughs> I think the point of this question is there isn't much for tomatoes and ketchup. She's all fake. Yeah. There's probably some some corn in there as well as far as the yeah. sugar content is concerned. Have some vinegar. Have we talked about purple ketchup on this podcast? I don't no. believe we so have. This question... I'll say this discussion came up the other day with my wife and I, and uh, anyway, so I went to school, um, I have a marketing degree, and this was an example that came up in there, because Mm -hmm. in theory, and even with all the market research, it made a ton of sense, okay? It's fun, like purple ketchup, it's for the kids, it's all, yeah, it's all, all the research showed, yep. When they launched her, flop. Huge mm. flop because people want to see what yeah. they know. Ketchup yeah. is red, Don't and, change and it. they have like a almost like an emotional attachment to just just how that habit is. Like how that you pull it out of the yeah. fridge, it feels like this, it looks like this. It yeah, especially with ketchup because there's people that won't if it's not Heinz. I'm not eating it. Exactly. Well, I was gonna say, have you guys tried other ketchups and what is in your fridge right now? Well, didn't we have to? Didn't. Uh, Okay, well, it's French's ketchup and Heinz yeah. ketchup. 
Oh, that was it. That's what it yeah. was. Heinz, Heinz pulled out, and then, uh, yeah, and I think you couldn't get it or whatever, so in Canada, you had to get French's. Oh, which, yeah. And you know what's really weird right now? Because in my fridge right now, I have French's ketchup, and I have Heinz mustard. Oh, buddy. Oh. How old are each of those things? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, do you guys remember Clear Pepsi? So that's another one where people, you know, have an expectation when they pour the Pepsi into a glass, and what what is this? Invisible cola. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, on, <laughs> honestly, no sense. the the consumer decision making yeah. aspect that goes on in there is even when they changed the uh, Coke formula. Yep, mm-hmm. you remember that? Yeah. Then so back to the Coke class. It's it just there's something about if it ain't broken, yeah. don't fix it. I don't want new Coke. I want yeah. regular Coke. I don't want purple tomatoes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, that's where I thought that was going, is the amount of stuff that's in ketchup. I don't imagine there's a ton of tomatoes in there. But now, like there's, I did think there was lots of lots in there. Yeah. Okay, agriculture is the largest employer in the world. What is second? Automotive, import-export, retail, or artisan? Import export is such a vast category. I would go there. That seems tricky. Going with um, automotive. I'm automotive. I'll go with retail. Okay. You're neither one or right. Okay. It's actually artisan. Really? Yeah. Huh. But you have to think of how many how many like non developed countries, that's how they make their living, like making bracelets, making uh, jewelry, yeah. jewelry, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So yeah, artisan is after this podcast uh, season is done. I'm going to call you Tricky Trevor yeah. for, for the <laughs> remainder of me knowing you <laughs> on the mic with Tricky Trevor. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it's time for now. You know, it's uh, where we talk to people, experts in the egg industry. Uh, today we're talking with David Fielding with Top Crop. Tell us, David, does uh, foliar feeding really work? Those who who argue that foliar feeding does not work, but still use herbicide and insecticide and fungicide are they're not seeing the whole picture because in broad leaf applications of herbicide translocate through the leaf surface. If you can do it with a herbicide, you can do it with nutrients. Mm-hmm. And it, it, is it safe to say that that is the argument? Like when you bump up against people saying foliar applications don't work. That's uh, that's not the way the plant is designed. Would you say that's why that argument exists is because people don't believe that nutrients can also be taken in through the leaf surface? Right. There's, there's, there's a couple arguments there. Um, one is that the atom size is too large. Mm-hmm. Well, we can calculate or we know what the size of each one of those ions is. We can break it down and say, you know, something that is ammonium nitrate based. Well, NH4, NO3, that NH4 has an overall size. That NO3 has an overall size. And the, 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 one of the largest ions or, or, or salts that, that I can I can find or, or that I have seen in the past is, is dipotassium phosphate and its overall size as a unit passing through the leaf surface is like having a truck be in a swimming pool. Got it. The atom is the truck and the swimming pool is the, the 
orifice that it, it passes through. I mean, it's, it's so large in comparison to each one of these salt units that, like I said, once you match the polarity on the leaf, it has no choice, right? Mm-hmm. When you, when you um, mix honey or, or mix olive oil with um, spearmint or winter, wintergreen or, or mint in general, what you're doing is you're running a nonpolar extraction. Now, the things that you want to come out of there are going to come out of there. But all of the other essential oils that are coming out of that system are also coming out of that system, and they don't have a choice. Same thing happens on the leaf surface when you pass the waxy cuticular pore. Yeah, the, it, 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 it boggles my mind from time to time when, when in the same breath, you know, somebody says, foliar feeding doesn't work. And we ask, do you use Roundup? Yes. Does it work for you? Yes. Then, then you use foliar feeding. Why do you think people say that? It, it very much goes against tradition. I think that's the reason why is people aren't adaptive to change, especially in farming practices. It happens with evolution, but it's, there's still a lot of, you know, and I, I, I've been saying that for years is, you know, agriculture is one of the only industries where you put all your groceries, everything into the field at once and you roll the dice and hopefully Mother Nature comes. And, you know, where you're originally from down in the U.S., is uh, foliar uh, applied nutrients or fertilizers is is a practice that's been used for years and years and years. And and that might have a lot to do with the amount of nitrogen that you guys put or the U.S. puts on corn versus the crops that we have today. Same with liquid versus dry applications of fertilizer. The farm sizes that are in Canada sometimes are prohibitively large when we want to put liquid in furrow as much as we would like to do it yeah it may just not make sense because you take too many trips to a liquid tank and it just takes too much time to plant it's bulky it is and farm sizes in the united states are much much smaller um and and that's something that has allowed them to have roughly a 50 50 split Versus, I think it's 85-15 dry to liquid up here when it comes to in-furrow or soil applications of fertilizer. You include uh, anhydrous in that uh, traditional uh, or liquid form or is a granular? What do you consider? Because there's a lot of anhydrous that goes on uh, that gets applied here. Same in the United States. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about resistance to change or, or how things may, you know, you're, you've, you've made the investment, right? Yep. You've put an ammonia tank on your machine and this is what you're going to do. Change takes mentality, change takes dollars, change takes time. So what would you say the, the biggest benefit of changing the logistics in your process to incorporate foliar would be? What's the biggest benefit of using foliar products? You can mix it every time that you go out into the field. You're not limited on when you can apply it. It's 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 mostly for, you know after seeding. You know once you have post emerge and you're you're up and out of the ground and all of the power plants on the leaf are doing their job. You can the the next time that you go out maybe for herbicide, put in a slow release nitrogen product put in micronutrients, find a way to make that trip more worth it. Yeah. Using slow release nitrogen can allow you to do that because you mix a micronutrient with a slow release nitrogen, that micronutrient foliar feeds. You mix a phos, you mix a potash, you mix a you mix a sulfur, 
as long again as long as you match the polarity that's on the leaf to within a, a margin of error it has no choice but to pass that barrier so you're basically just jumping on the bus that's already going by exactly you're using it as the vehicle to get in the plant as absorption and there you have it thanks david we're going to move on to our uh, last segment of our show today and that's an interview with our special guest our guest today is uh, Sid from Meridian. So welcome. Thanks for the invite. Well, let's uh, take some time to get to know Sid a little bit. Um, where are you from originally? Um, I was raised in Strom, Alberta, small town, small town Strom. It's only about an hour east of uh, Camrose, where I live right now. And my wife was a farm girl as well from uh, about uh, Cedric was the name of the community. So her claim to fame was that uh, she was... Uh, uh, rode the bus and neighbors with Kevin Martin, so oh, yeah. there, there's some history there. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my claim to fame was uh, we were just school rivals. We uh, don't don't ask me how we we got together, but anyway, we it was yeah. all good. Yeah. These small town communities, you get uh, school rivals going. So, so you grew up on a farm. Yes. Yeah. What was it like for you as a child? What are some of your earliest memories? Well, we had a mixed operation. Um, we probably had as much emphasis on our our cattle as we did the grains. Um, I would say compared to anything nowadays at, you know, a small farm and, uh, but, uh, wouldn't trade. Uh, it was the best life as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. How many siblings you got? How many siblings? Two. Where I had you, two, fit? one left. I'm the oldest. Oh yeah. And don't get into the difference <laughs> between the oldest and youngest. Cause I deal with that with three daughters that, uh, <laughs> so the oldest is the best. Oh. I'm going to say the most deserving, but uh, that doesn't always happen. <laughs> it's all good. The oldest paves the way, something like that. Yeah. All I can uh, relate to is I'm the youngest, and uh, it's the best. You just uh, Everyone just forgets about you, and, and all the hard stuff's done, and you just kind of, your parents by that point, yeah, I think you can just do what you want as long as your brother takes you to and from the party. Yeah. Well, I'm potentially for you. I'm I'm sure uh, Ryan left a really wide wake for you to just follow in between and really not get into much trouble. Yeah, but, it, uh, you know, it really wasn't hard to just uh, abide and uh, not get into much trouble because the the goalposts on the limits Ryan set, yeah, they were pretty wide. And even April, as much as we think April's like the golden child, because like she is. No, no. There was a few years in there where she widened the goalposts a little bit more. <laughs> so by the time I came up, there was no curfews. There was no nothing. I just had to be at church first thing in the morning. So it didn't even matter where I slept typically. And the amount of times I'd get my parents or my friend's parents to drive me to church was, yeah, it was lots. You're still showing up in your Metallica t-shirt <laughs> yeah, at church exactly. on Sunday morning. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I raised three daughters and, you know, I, I didn't realize that there was actually significance with the youngest child syndrome and the oldest child. It was the middle child. They, they say gets the most abuse, but, uh, our, our youngest daughter, you, you're right that there was no rules by the time that she come along, no curfews or time limits, but she was the best kid. All of our girls See? were hundred percent. I'm telling you, but, <laughs> our, our youngest, she there was, she would call and ask permission to skip class because for whatever the you know logical reason she had to skip class. But um, you know that's just how. Good. Is it really skipping class if your parents know? No, no, no. no, no, no I don't no. think so. It's I not. think that's like, that's almost like a sick day. Yeah, right. Yeah, that, that's a pass. That's yeah. a pass. 
it's different too like the parenting style when you have your first one compared to your third one because your first one oh you drop the soother you take it and you boil it yep. and you make sure it's <laughs> yeah. all the right temperature and you stick it back in the third one you just pick it up shake yeah okay, shake there it you go. Yeah. so I'm learning a lot about myself as the uh, youngest the third kid in my family because we just have so our youngest now is our third child and uh, she just turned one here a couple months ago and I just watch how my wife treats her Compared to how she treated our oldest, Warner, same thing. Warner was like a boil to soother, kind of like just big deal. Quinn runs around the house doing whatever she wants. And as long as she's not falling down the stairs, because she's always breaking stuff. So we kind of put a gate up. And But other than that, as long as she's not crying, that house is whatever she wants it to be. And my wife's just like, yeah, whatever. She's fine. Yeah. So I, I get now like just what my upbringing must have been and my mom just being yeah tired there's two other kids mitch just as long as you're safe and not crying go do whatever you want it's like yeah got it so sid as the oldest did you feel coddled or did you think your parents were uh, potentially a little harder on you than the other siblings i probably back then i would have said they were harder on me because being the oldest i and we did because of mixed farming that you're doing chores and there's lots of work to do but um, the part that I loved about it was learning the, the work ethic. Like I, you know, I, my great uh, brother and sister, but uh, I, I believe truly that uh, mm-hmm. I was taught, you know, there's, there's things that have to get done and you're part of that. And, and it just made such a difference in life to, to be able to do that and, and learn those things and responsibilities. But, yep. you know, you, you asked the question about, you know, what do you do raising on a farm? And I don't think about it very much, but I couldn't imagine not being raised on a farm. Mm-hmm. You know, the things that get learnt, even just you know driving vehicles and equipment, some of it just becomes intuitive. Uh, work mechanically, you just you're working with equipment, so you're trying to fix stuff. You don't right away run it down to a, a local shop to try and get it fixed. You're going to try and tweak it yourself first, wreck it a little bit more, and then you yeah. take it in, right? <laughs> <laughs> when I was young, and I must have been six or seven, and you're on the farm, you're just messing around with stuff, and I had a hydraulic hose, and like, hmm, what's this little uh, silver ball on here? What happens if I just press this against the tire? And of course, covered me completely in hydraulic oil, in my eyes, everything, but those are the things you learn oh, yeah. on the farm as a kid, right? I also learned, I think it was five or six years old, that if you take a pitchfork and you punch it into the sidewall of a grain truck tire, it makes a really cool sound. I heard (laughs) this story. What did your dad say? Oh, it was grandpa, and grandpa was mad. So why why Needless to say, we went to the Lake Thunder Co-op that day. I did not get a Coke. That normally happens when we go to the co-op. I did not get a Coke that day. (laughs) No no (laughs) treats for me. (laughs) So Sid, uh, what was your first job off of the family farm? first job off the farm was actually working for another farmer a family friend and uh, just just running equipment Uh, but yeah most of everything I've done in life uh, the different uh, jobs have been either related 100% in the ag industry um, to working on farms so another job I did too shortly after that was working for a large feedlot and so I thought we had a lot of critters until you know two three hundred you know, cows is a pretty good size operation back then, and but and suddenly when you're working with thousands of cattle in a feedlot, and different you know, mm-hmm. different dynamics altogether. But um, yeah, from running fertilizer plants, I was in the grain trade, uh, worked uh, for eight nine years with Richardson's, uh, worked for the terminal in Vancouver. More, I I was their uh, Alberta canola coordinator, so I uh, dealt with all the canola trading and stuff. And it's uh, it was fun. It's been a good life. 
So how did you find your way to Meridian? How did how did that happen? Or how did you find your way to Wheat Belt Sales, I should say? Yeah, good question. So I played hockey. I was in the hockey team. I didn't play last night, by the way. That was an awesome event you guys put together. I mean, totally cool. But um, So I played on the Meridian. Um, um, it was called the Wheatland Ducks at the time. And um, so I knew knew the ownership, and knew uh, Glenn Friesen, who is still my boss today. And uh, he'll, he would tell the story the same way if Glenn was here. He would say, Sid came into his office and says, you need to hire me. I'm going to be working here. <laughs> and that's the honest truth. It was um, something had uh, broke on my vehicle. And so one of the guys from the hockey team says, oh, just come over and we'll weld it in the back shop. So after hours, he'd pull in the back door, big doors go up and drive in there and tic-tac and it's all done. And, and as soon as I drove in, I says, I need to be working here. Mm-hmm. I need to be working. Here. And I was early 30s at the time, and I won't tell you how old I guess that does tell how old I am. <laughs> but uh, um, anyway, yeah, it's been, I, I went in and, and uh, Glenn slowly, he decided, yeah, I need to hire, I need a sales guy because he was doing all the uh, Western Canada by himself. And and he didn't give me keys. So here's the, here's the initiation into this company, just the trust immediately. Um, it was August. And he wouldn't give me a key for the office. He forgot to do that. But he says, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. And okay, there's a uh, you know, price list, whatever. Like, who do I call? Dealers, stuff like that. And um, by the way, the janitor room window, you can get in and out of there. <laughs> so that's how I got into my office. The janitor room was my office, and I had no key for a couple of weeks. But, uh, it was, it was, it's been excellent. Uh, it's been very good. Awesome. So, well, let's then, I guess we could say fast forward, but... If I timestamp this, I'm going to say this is about 80s or so. And I would ask you when you started working with Flamin. But if I really think back, Flamin was already working with Meridian prior to Sid. Actually, my first experience with Flamin was in this, not this hall, but this building. Oh, yeah. And so back in the grain trade, um, that would have been late 80s, early 90s. um, We used to have all the, the... Saskatchewan Ag Commodity Association meetings were held at Saskam. And we actually did a trade show there. So all the suppliers and grain companies and people that were involved, we would set up tables. We'd all get tabletop booths and we'd set them in the courtyard at Saskam. And it just got too busy. And everybody wanted a little bit more space and blah, blah, blah. And you know what the ramps are all like trying to facilitate that. So that's that's when it moved down to Prairie Land here. And I think it was a Monday evening um, just Monday evening only, where they had larger displays and we'd set up a, a little bit of equipment. So my first experience with Flamin, you guys were, uh, I met Henry and some of the guys from Conveil. You guys were handling Conveil conveyors at the time. Yeah. And I met some some of the Flamin guys there. That was a that was a long time ago. That was yep. a long time ago. In fact, uh, I think the Conveil was gray at the time. Um, uh, yeah, that's that, that was my first experience with Flamin. And then... Uh, one of our guys that used to work for us, Everald Olson, which still works for you guys uh, in Alberta. Everald was a Meridian guy prior he, to a Flamin guy? He was a Meridian guy oh, before yeah. a Flamin guy. Wheatland bins. Sorry. Yeah. I, I just uh, yeah. keep it current. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he, he was a buddy of mine, a neighbor, and lived down the street from us. So, yeah. Everald has to have been with Flamin for over 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. So the one thing I do know about uh, Meridian, or I have heard, is you guys do have a very strong culture. Um, w- w- can you talk a little bit about the culture at Meridian and, and maybe you know your viewpoint on w- what it is or what you're trying to contribute to that culture? 
Yeah, that's, you know, good questions you guys ask because it always makes you think internally a little bit, and we always try to look at what, what other people are doing. But, the yeah, Meridian had, does have a great culture. On um, We have distinct teams, I guess you could say that. We have our, our production and operations team. We have our logistics team, and we've got our sales and marketing team. We try to run that together, even though marketing doesn't get out there and do the selling per se, and, and sales doesn't per se do the marketing, but they they work very closely together. But uh, so within those groups, they're a tight community. They really are. Like we try to support each other with whether it's, uh, you know, helping out with training ourselves, our new guys. Uh, even when we have dealers that we need to, to help out, we try to all hands on deck, stuff like that. You come to an event like you guys are putting on here, I connect, it's all hands on deck. We brought every Canadian RSM in here that uh, deals with the Flama Network. And um, so that's strong. On the production side, same thing. They, they, they work together where even some of our, our production uh, managers and directors of operations, they'll do multiple, uh, they cover multiple locations so that that culture isn't completely unique at every, at every place. Even the different staff, yes. We have different needs in cameras than we do in Regina than we do in, in Winkler. But because there's that commonality of some of the leadership, that culture gets uh, moved around and, st- and it spreads throughout the whole uh, community. Um, we've got a ton of guys that are, like I'm 28 years old, and, or 28, not years old, 28 years <laughs> of the company. And, uh, but we've got a lot of guys that are well into their 30s and uh, it's got to be close to 10 guys that are in their 40, 40 uh, wow. past their 40 wow. years, 43, That's great. 44. Glenn's 42, I think it is, years mm-hmm. of the company. So... And, you know, you don't get that if it's not a good place to work. You don't get that if there's no pride in the company as well as pride in what you do and who you work for. It's a family-owned business. Um, Russ Edwards, Russ and Ed Edwards out of uh, Winnipeg own the company. And um, even though they're not necessarily involved in daily, daily operations, um, he, for the most part, tries to get into the office every day. Uh, you know, he's um, well into his uh, 80s, so he turned that over many years ago to, you know, capable people. So, yeah, it's good to be part of a family family company, not a publicly traded. And, and I say that not to, uh, to put anybody down. It's just there is a different culture in a private company. Family involvement, family, you're answering to family, not a bunch of shareholders, even though they're shareholders, right? The family is the shareholders, but it's different culture. I can attest to that. That's why I'm here. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Sid, um, so you've got a few pieces of equipment uh, on the floor. Uh, One of the most interesting is uh, the Volt. Uh, Can you talk a bit about that? I can talk about the Volt. Uh, We're actually very excited about it. But uh, maybe just to to back it up just a little bit. Um, The Volt is new and is exciting. um, And we're proud that it's part of the ag industry. That's where... You know, and I think ag is the the innovation. That's where so much innovation begins, is in agriculture, and even to the point of aerospace, things like that. Things are tried and tested on the farm. You know, most urbanites they they say, well, that's garbage, but that's the truth. Um, at Meridian and many of you know companies like us, there's not anything new and sexy for the most part. Like we're in the storage business. You know, what can you change on a smooth wall bin? So, you know, we went from it. Uh, being made and rolled on a on a cement floor and 
and uh, welded together and then they they brush paint on to okay now we got some really nice paint moves and we're still spraying on and and then we now we moved in the late 90s we started powder coating so now we have five of the world's largest powder bake ovens you know so that was innovation for us but the output was still a smooth wall bin a hopper bin right so along comes uh, uh, the the volt and there's a such a swing to try to to create um, uh, different energy and to use different energy and and well how does that apply to agriculture you're not it's never going to happen um, but we yeah we took um, convey all uh, it, it started with uh, the convey all conveyor and we we pulled off uh, the engine we left all the hydraulics everything that drives the conveyor itself other than its power source uh, we took that off and we put on a bunch of batteries um, lithium batteries and I'm going to say Honestly, I think to our surprise, it works really good. <laughs> Everybody was pretty pumped, yeah. and uh, so we, you know, you're worried about like, right, what are we out minus thirty right now or something like that today? It's it's terrible, and um, so you, the question's always, well, how is it going to work in the cold weather? Um, how you know how often you have to charge it? Like, what are you going to? You can't take it out remotely because you need a batch, you know, a, a power supply to to charge it and. We're slowly learning that uh, there are so many applications for battery, um, whether it's a grain auger conveyor and, and other, even our CST, like we can convert that to uh, to battery as well. But um, it it works good. The capacity uh, is potentially going to be better than our engines because using computer, um, we're able to plug in and just we can. Um, do some coding in the control system to it's like changing the horsepower on your engine or changing the engine to bigger horsepower we're able to do that and of course that affects how long your batteries last but it's it's pretty cool how this thing works and the applications well let's let's talk what's sort of happened a bit i guess at some of the places we've taken it this thing's traveled a lot across north america its last visit at a large event was the agitrade in red deer and uh, the first thing that happens when a farmer comes in there, he, he says, really, what What are you guys doing? Like, do you guys realize how cold it gets? Everybody's negative, everybody. There's not one exception to that. But I don't think that we had one guy leave that didn't say, you know, that is a really cool idea. Um, I could see it happening here. I could see it using it here. And you start to, start to see where this makes sense. And are we going to replace all the gas engines? No. Um, but we're taking it now in February. Um, we're doing the, the trade show run here in, in Western Canada uh, till the end of, um, to mid-January. I think the last one will be Manitoba Ag Days. And then we're taking it down to Tulare to World Ag Expo. So why would we take it there? Well, because I think it's January 1 or very soon here, you can't sell a gas engine um, under 100 horsepower. Um, you gotta have a different source. And yeah, you can, you can use your old ones, yes, but uh, you can't. Have, you got to have a new new source of power. So we've got a lot of interest uh, already from around the world on on that unit there for for that application to run conveyors, hmm. run an auger. Yeah, can you talk about a little bit about the the design concept to where it is now and the the paces you put it through to actually get it to work as well as it does. I also want to know the thought. Okay, so like. Uh, some of the biggest deals I've done in my life 
had to do with a case of beer and a napkin. And I actually have a napkin framed because we drew it out. And, and, and I'm not kidding. So I want to know the conversation that happened where someone was like, I think we should build an electric auger my, or a conveyor. Because my guess is that no different than all the farmers walking through this trade show, there was probably some internal people at Meridian and Conveyor. They were like, what? Why? So I want to I want to know how this started and then I want to know some of the paces cuz you and I have talked about the paces and it is there's so it's pretty impressive and you and I have talked about how I accidentally bought um, an electric Polaris Ranger. I didn't yeah. know it was electric yeah. when I bought it. It came with my house. Yeah. And since I've had it, uh, all my neighbors so they make fun of me and and it's awesome because we all like actually really like it. It works really good. But all their wives want one now because it's quiet and it works good and they don't have to fill it up with fuel. And it's just like, there's little things about it that until you used it, I I thought I made a mistake when I bought it. And now if I were to buy another one, my wife asked me, if we bought another side-by-side, what would you get? And I had to say to her, well, whoa, whoa, does so we call it the Tesla. I don't know. It's just its nickname. I said, well, does the Tesla still exist or do I have to replace it? Because if the Tesla died, we have to buy another Tesla. But if it still exists, well, then I got, you know, a whole different story of what I want for a side-by-side. So how did the conversation go? How did the idea start? And what kind of paces have you put it through? Okay, let's start with some of the ideas. So it seems like um, need breeds or necessity breeds innovation and ideas. So you know how over the last few years it's been so difficult to get engines. Yeah. It's in everybody. doesn't matter what. Doesn't matter what size it is. Doesn't matter who it is. Doesn't matter what industry it is. Doesn't matter yeah. what industry it is. And um, at the same time, alongside that is all this conversation about batteries. And you mentioned whether it's Tesla, Elon, whoever. Doesn't matter. And there's even government pushes. And there's they don't seem to give any programs. They're just saying going to make this change. But anyway, there's so there's all this conversation uh, in the press and uh, all this information out there about need to go batteries. Got to. It's got to be got to be battery operated vehicles to they're even talking battery powered combines and tractors and things like that so my boss again glenn freeze and he's by the glenn's our senior vice president of sales and marketing and uh, it was his idea uh to start with and even internally you still get that oh, dumb idea like honestly you know whether anybody would verbalize that to, to glenn or not doesn't matter it's the idea is that how do you apply that to our customer base as it exists well, the first thing is you got to, will it work? And so a little bit of studying and our, our guys in R&D, uh, Sam was the fellow in, involved with that, and Gerald, which is our product manager on the conveyor side. Um, yeah, we think we can make it work, but you never know until you try it. So Glenn said, let's do it. You got permission to, to do the research, uh, acquire the batteries, acquire the electronics. Um, it's not going to work if you don't try it, and you'll never know. So thumbs up, let's, let's make this work. So while they were doing that, um, marketing in this situation usually isn't involved in this at this time. It's just some kind of a, a brainchild. But they made the mistake of, of talking to us about it, and they're mentioning it to me. And, and I says, number one, we need to give it some kind of name, and we need to have some kind of, uh, we've got to lock this down. And we'll be, will we be the only... Uh, ones that apply a battery to an, an auger and a conveyor, absolutely not. But the, the the point is we we need to protect this a little bit. So we we 
tried to get a name even for this product that we haven't even got on the machine yet. All we know is that it's going to be batteries. The engine's gone. We're going to be batteries on there. And uh, is this for just the conveyor? Is it just for this conveyor or just this model? No, we got to think past that. We want to, you know, create something. If this does work the way we hope to, um, we, we want to be able to use it on everything. So long story short, we locked down the Volt. We got that figured out and did some trademarking and some patenting. And, and um, so then the testing comes. And uh, w- so we brought it, what was the first? Oh, Ag in Motion. That was the Ag in Motion in July was, was the first time. So we had a terrible time getting these batteries. So Ag in Motion, for sake of a date, was, say, July 20th. Um, the batteries showed up. Uh, it, wasn't, it would have been the 17th. So if the 20th was a show day one, it was three days ahead of that. And so Gerald and some of the guys worked around the clock through the night to get this thing, and they get it on there and get it hooked up, get it wired up, turn the key, it works. Okay, we got power. Actually, the lights work and all that. This is, this is awesome. And because they didn't replace any of the hydraulics, the, the hydraulic pump and everything was there, all they had to do was connect to the hydraulic pump to turn so they could now run this conveyor. So we didn't run any product through the unit. The unit itself is a Conveil 1650 oil seed series that had a million and plus pounds run through it already um, it was through hemp because we were testing that unit. By the way, that just worked extremely well. But that was on the on the hemp test for oil seed. So we brought it to the show uh, at, at Ag and Motion with We'd probably turn the key on once or twice. That's all that, that happened to it. But we could run it. We turned the belt. The press was happy. We were happy. Dealers saw it. Customers hated it. Then said, wow, that's a good idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that was sort of the first week experience. Yeah. And then it's gone on a road trip to various shows, various, um, it was down in the U.S. and some of the shows down there. And then um, we finally got to run Canola through it. I believe it was in September. And uh, so we were at a large farm in the Dakotas, and uh, Jacob and I f- flew down there, and and we wanted to do this video shoot. And um, again, farmer was pretty skeptical of this crazy thing because he'd bought one of our large, uh, I think it was a twenty-two one ten with a big diesel engine on it, and he said, "That's that's what I need. That's that's the way to go." And what's his battery operated thing? But he has semis coming in all the time, like. I don't know how many dozen semis come into his yard every day. And we says, can we just, we, all we want to do is try this thing out, take some pictures, and uh, so we can show some guys, show some dealers. And uh, all of a, he, we had, oh, by the way, back up. We haven't been able to even set this thing, like I talk how you can tweak the, the, um, the computer in there to, to, to flex it a little bit so get as much uh, jam out of it as you can. Like the power curve, right? The power just curve. Just like you turn a, turn yeah. a vehicle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, uh, we, it's, so it's still, everything's factory settings. There's nothing been adjusted on it yet. Well, we couldn't believe it. We loaded this Sammy in about 11 minutes and uh, with canola. And so two things. Number one, we're really impressed because the, uh, there was no spillage whatsoever. There, we couldn't find a kernel on this guy's nice pad. So, okay, the, the oil seed series part worked really well. But the most amazing thing was he says, okay, that conveyor stays here. 
No, 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 no. It's not There's sure. only one. Yeah, that's like my wife and this electric side by side yeah. now, the Tesla. Yeah. She's like, no, no, no. Like, I need this. I'm like, you yeah. need it. It's mine. Yeah. He's like, no, it yeah. stays. Okay, fine. So we did let him keep it for a week, and he he ran it some more. And and I don't believe he ever did charge it up. Uh, we hadn't charged it up, by the way. Like so. Um, I just noticed here this morning this thing's running at 80 some uh, percent, but we haven't charged in a long time. It's been weeks, mm-hmm. and you know we're not running high volume of product through it. But so so we tested it there. We're very very happy with it. Um, we have a, some things that we're going to be doing to it here, and before it goes to Tulare to the World Ag Expo, um, we will be taking the hydraulics off of it. It's going to be 100 percent electric driven. And um, it's going to be even more efficient yet. But um, we were concerned that when we did run product through it that we'd lose a bunch of capacity. Did not lose capacity. In fact, I, I'm sh- I, I think it may have even bumped a little bit. Um, just because to get volume out of anything like this, you need horsepower. You need to have power. And whether it's a gas engine, diesel engine, doesn't matter. And um, this thing seems to have lots. It, it works very, very well. So we're still the same capacity as we had on the oil seed series before so hmm. just around that nine nine thousand bushel an hour which believe me you can make a big mess oh, at yeah. nine thousand bushels an hour where's this all going where is it going well i don't think it's the answer for every mm-hmm. conveyor auger out there it really isn't because there's there there are places where you need to have uh, that are so remote um but um i think it demonstrates again agriculture's willingness to adapt to be real like yeah. you know we um we're not trying to change the world we're just trying to be a part of this world is that if that if that's a dumb statement here and we're not even trying to lead the the move to to battery and to away from you know natural use of gas and you know i don't think anybody really knows where it's going for certain we just know we're taking yeah. the next step yeah, and you, and we that may not be a straight line where it goes to. When they started talking autonomous tractors and autonomous, uh, which they have been equipment. for years. Yeah, um, but again, everybody, give your head a shake, guys. You can't. Uh, yeah. We need to have somebody behind that steering wheel. Well, we're learning. Well, maybe we don't, and it looks different than it did five years ago, and it definitely looks yep. different now than it did ten years ago. But it's real. Yeah, and I guess we're the same thing with uh, this uh, this battery. Is it? And there's many applications for it. There are so many different applications for it, and we won't know what they're all going to be like in the forever. But I always thought it was a. I thought we thought it was a Saskatchewan thing where uh, you know people were really, especially in the egg industry, very resistant to change. Um, and your first reaction is hell no, no. But you, I mean, and maybe it's more of an agricultural thing it's, it's where egg, yeah. uh, you know there's a lot of things moving and a lot of things changing, and yeah, a lot of people are resisting it. But I think this younger generation that's coming in are really open and willing to try new things. Yeah, I don't think I, it's notorious for, and maybe it's my age talking here a bit, but notoriously, your first, you know, when something new like that comes up, no, it's not for me. It's, there's that resistance, but then usually a couple sleeps and you start to think, you know what, that's a, not a, whether I like yeah. the idea or not, I can even do it better than that. Yeah. And that's, that's where the innovation comes in the ag industry. Cause these guys think on their feet, uh, you know, part of it's, they, they want to do things themselves and they are, if there's something big, they want to be a part of it. Uh, Absolutely. Um, I'm proud of, I'm really, honestly, I'm proud to be a part of the ag industry. I'm glad that yep. my, my life, my career has never taken me out of that. Uh, are there other paths that you know a person can go on? 
absolutely that uh, I'm glad they're there but I'm glad to be a part of the ag and say I'm yep. you know same with our company Meridian it's it's a good place you can take the boy off the farm but can't take the farm out of the boy I think that you're right that's good <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so what do you think the most important part of being a part of the ag industry is I just think that relationships in the ag industry are extremely powerful and very, very important. Those relationships with the customers fall down if you don't have good relationships with your, your vendors. And, you know, we look at this as very much a three-way um, partnership, if you want to say. We can't, do, we can't be in every community um, without you. We can't have a plant in how many, there's 1,000, 2,000, maybe 3,000 communities in Saskatchewan alone, right? Rating can't be in every one. But the dealers and your sales team, you can be. And so we partner with you as a dealer, and you have that, re- that direct connection with your local customers. You're not going to have the same relationship with one of your sales guys in Yorkton as he can't have a, the same relationship as he would a friend and customer in Yorkton as he would say in Swift Current. So that's why you have another guy in Swift Current. And, but it's still flying the Flyman flag that's sourcing some Meridian product or whatever it might be. So... Okay, well, I guess that wraps things up uh, for today. We'd like to thank Sid for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. Appreciate you guys. Thank you for listening to Flamin' Connect. For Mitch Flamin' and Regan Kuntz, I'm Trevor Grindy. Join us next time. Talk to you soon. Music.